Hi, this is Howie Singer and Bill Rosenblatt, authors of Key Changes, the 10 Times Technology Transformed the Music Industry. You're listening to the Your Morning Coffee podcast with our friends Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. From Billboard, most tracks on Spotify won't earn a royalty under new scheme. And from Trapital, it's out, the Trapital Report. And from Howie Singer and Bill Rosenblatt, key changes the 10 times technology transformed the music industry. And oh, that is a book we already love. Jay. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, we're glad you're here for episode 169. Jay and I are going to hit the button right about now. Stand by for transmission. This is London Calling. Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air. For the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. Now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. my brother ah, good Sunday to see you us. too my friend it's a beautiful day out and you and i were just talking for a while before we uh we hit the button and there's just so much uh to talk about you and i were joking that uh, i mean we could really do a show every day there's so much today yeah. just uh if you haven't checked out your morning coffee the newsletter this uh last week wow uh just there's a lot going on uh you, you may want to check that out well, a lot of it's and it's kind of a, a really uh, a wonderful mixture of business issues, of creative issues, of just a whole potpourri of different things that are happening that are <laughs> yeah. coming down the, the path that yeah. uh, that we, it's fun to talk about. And 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 but, but it's a lot. There is yeah. a lot of stuff. And of course, and there was a new Beatles track this week on top of that. Who thought we would say that? I know. And, and it's that video was so amazing. And I think you and I were yeah. just talking about the Rolling Stones latest video, which was mm-hmm. stunning. And it just it's like, what year are we in? It it was really, really incredible. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today, um, we actually talked to the authors, um, which is really Fun. So, first of all, thank you for that great intro to the podcast today by Howie Singer and yeah. Bill Rosenblatt. And again, they're the authors of the new book, Key Changes The Ten Times Technology Transformed the Music Industry. And we'll get there in a minute, but we had a chance to speak with them this week. But you and I were talking about that cool uh, music streaming royalty calculator uh, that yes. we saw this week. 
It was in Billboard. Um, we also put a direct link in your morning coffee. And it was from this legal uh, consulting firm, uh, Manat, Phelps, and Phillips. And they developed this tool to calculate payouts across Spotify and Apple Music. So this calculator, super easy to use. You just plug in the number of streams generated by a song or an album, and it provides the following information. I'll let you talk about it. Yeah, so you get the total payout for that figure, number of streams, uh, the sound recording payout to the copyright owner, mechanical royalties paid to the music publisher, which then pays the songwriter, of course, and performance royalties paid to the uh, performance rights organization, the PROs like ASCAP, BMI, GMR, and CSAC. So it's fun. really fascinating. It was fun and to play with, like plug in it, a certain number of streams and go, oh, and didn't it jump out at you? how different the payouts were between Apple Music and Spotify? Yes, absolutely. You know, darn near double payouts uh, from Apple relative to Spotify. So, but as you as you and I were talking also when we before we we hit record, it's you know, in the current way everything is calculated, it, it it's going to put you in the ballpark, but don't yeah. don't write that down as exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. So, there's a lot of variables that our music industry attorneys uh told us about. The other thing I, you know, we've been talking about a lot lately is, you know, Taylor Swift re-recorded, you know, her mm-hmm. her albums and continues to do so. And there was this great piece in uh, in Billboard this week, and the headline was "Labels Want to Prevent Taylor's Version Like Re-Recordings from Ever Happening Again." Um, <laughs> and we'll just touch on this really quickly. They they were talking about record companies; they're really trying to keep artists from re-recording their songs for longer periods, and in some cases, ever again. So. The majors, Universal, Sony, Warner, they've recently overhauled contracts for their new signees. And this is according to top music uh, business attorneys. So some are demanding artists wait an unprecedented 10, 15, or even 30 years to re-record releases after departing their record companies. (laughs) <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, Dina Lapolt, who's a music attorney with a long history of grappling with labels over contracts, said, now, because of all this Taylor Swift stuff, we have an even new negotiation. It's awful. We're seeing a lot of perpetuity. When we were negotiating deals with lawyers, before we could get the proposal, we'd get the phone call from the head of business affairs. We literally would say, if you send that to me, it will be on Twitter in 10 minutes. <laughs> She said it never showed up. Once artists get past the weeds of re-recording restrictions, the bigger issue is controlling their master recordings. And that, of course, was Taylor Swift's primary concern in putting out her new versions after Scooter Braun purchased her catalog from Big Machine. Um, Artists and their attorneys have recently moved towards licensing deals, retaining ownership of their masters and signing with labels to distribute music for a limited period rather than traditional recording contracts where the label owns everything. And I remember when I was at Warner Brothers, uh, when that when they did a deal with REM, that was a big part of REM's deal after they left IRS to come to Warner's. And that was a huge deal at the time. And of course, that that, that reversion has actually happened. And so um, so REM has their own masters back from the Warner years. But uh, that seems like that's getting to be kind of a certainly a, a, an approach that a lot of artists are looking for yeah it's a big deal because of taylor swift so we wanted to make sure we touched on that and before we jump into our stories you know you and i talk about rob abelo uh, quite mm-hmm. a bit and uh he had a piece out um actually we're going to talk to him next week for the podcast but uh he has a blog and a, a 
website uh, where music's going, which is really, really good. <clears throat> but he had this piece up, and it was called uh, You Better Know Your Fans. Exactly. He says, when I was 23, I learned the power of knowing your fans. I was promoting a show for an artist in a 1,000 capacity room. The manager sent the contract back, signed, but crossed off the marketing budget. Now, managers usually want more marketing, not less. This guy wanted zero. Why, I asked, why waste money hoping to reach people who might be interested when I can just directly message everyone I know? Everyone who I know who cares, mm -hmm. he said. Simple, obvious, even, but overlooked. Yeah, he said that the show sold out and the artist pocketed 85% of the proposed marketing budget. The manager likely did this at every show on that tour, netting an extra $100,000 plus and making every promoter love them, right? Um, I felt like I had just learned a cheat code. It's not just that this artist had an email list. Everyone better have one. Um, it's that they had done all the work to convert everyone into it and understood how to activate them. Uh, they built their tribe, and they knew the power of it. He said it's so simple, but when you know your fans, you have a superpower. You're not reliant on algorithms, not constantly rediscovering and reselling, not wasting money on inefficient ad dollars. Everything becomes repeatable. There is no better marketing plan than having a direct relationship with your fans. Building a tribe compounds. Yeah, he talks about how you really need to capture fan data. And uh, Rob says that you, you need to use every opportunity to upgrade your relationship, both online and in real life. You know, create moments for fans to join in, onboard smoothly and effectively, create segments based on you know, location, intent, set up welcome sequences, uh, nurture and stay engaged with those fans, and spend as much time on email, SMS, and community as you do on social content. He goes on to say, an email is worth 1,000 streams. Every time you interact with your audience, it's an opportunity to upgrade your communication relationship. So make sure to turn the fleeting moments into something more long-lasting. And he says, here are some ideas across artist-fan interactions, include, including tour announce, ticket pre-sales, concert on-site, album release, singles, streaming, live stream, giveaways and exclusive, and best practices. So good stuff. You know, again, it's good to hear about the, the different ways of making sure you are connected with your tribe, right? Yeah. Yeah, and this is super good advice. And, and again, this is uh, Rob Abelow. Check out where music's going, uh, dot com. <clears throat> again, we will, uh, I think we're going to talk to him this coming week uh, for the podcast, which will be great. Um, before we jump into uh, our stories, and we have some really good ones this week <clears throat> and really good guests, um, I'd like to, uh, let's thank our sponsors. Um, Your Morning Coffee podcast is brought to you by our friends at Bandzoogle, built by musicians for musicians. Bandzoogle is an all-in-one platform. It makes it super easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. All the features that you need for a professional website, everything is built right in, like hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and live support from their musician-friendly team, seven days a week. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com and try it for free for 30 days. Just use a promo code MORNINGCOFFEE 
all one word. That'll get you 15% off your first year of any subscription. That's banzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. And we are also sponsored by Myco. Uh, discover Myco, your ultimate music companion. Enjoy weekly Zoom sessions and professional assistance with music bios, press release, and pitches. Access comprehensive databases collect, connecting you with key industry influencers at Spotify, TikTok, music blogs, radio, and more. Stay ahead of the game with regular industry updates, receive immediate support via WhatsApp, and thrive within our vibrant community of passionate musicians. Jump over to www.themico.com for more information. Yeah, and, and thanks to HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It's edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. You betcha, Bands in Town. Over 80 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and, mu and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist service platform, connecting over 590,000 artists with their super fans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yeah, and, and lastly, the Music Business Association. Um, they host an annual slate of in-person and virtual events, so industry professionals across the globe can come together and discuss hot-button issues and support the growth of the entire music business community. Join us for the Music Biz 2024 conference May 13th through the 16th at the JW Marriott in Nashville, Tennessee. You betcha. Big thanks to Banzoogle, Maiko, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. And, of course, every week... I get to hang out with the digital music ninja himself, Jay Gilbert. He's a music industry consultant. He's the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter and a former executive with little industry startups, Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music Groups. Yes, and I'm fortunate that I get to sit across from Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Group. And before we jump into the stories, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to just uh, give a shout out. Um, you and I talk about NITO, N-I-T-O, which is the National mm -hmm. Independent Talent Organization. Uh, we talk about NITO quite a bit. And uh, this trade group, um, they've just named their, their new board. So um, if you don't know, NITO is a trade group for independent booking agencies and management companies in the United States, and they represent thousands of uh, musicians. And uh, the uh, unanimous consent of the new NITO board consists of President Jack Randall, uh, Vice President uh, Michael Vegan, or Vega, I mean, sorry, Michael, um, and uh, Matt Yaseko for secretary, and then Treasurer Tom Chauncey. So congratulations, guys, uh, over there at NITO. There you go. All right, Jay, what do you say we jump into the stories? Our first from Billboard, most tracks on Spotify won't earn a royalty under the new scheme. Nice. Yeah, lots of talk about this this week. And I think the best piece that we read was from Glenn Peoples over at Billboard. The and Honorable. Glenn yes, Peoples. the Honorable Glenn Peoples. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he talks about how, you know, 0.5% of the royalty pool will be impacted. However, reflecting the large number of tracks that receive few streams. So 
He starts it off by saying that most tracks on Spotify will not be eligible to receive royalties based on the company's proposed royalty scheme that will go into effect next year, 2024. That's because a track must reach a threshold of 1,000 streams within 12 months to receive royalty payouts, according to an article written by Kristen, Kristen Graziani, president of the music distributor STEM, which is a source with knowledge of the plan confirmed these details to uh, Billboard. According to Spotify's loud and clear website, 37.5 million tracks had surpassed 1,000 all-time streams as of 2022. That's out of a catalog of about 100 million tracks at the end of last year, again, per Spotify's 2022 annual report. In other words, almost two-thirds of Spotify's catalog has never reached the 12-month minimum stream count to be eligible to receive royalties. Given that's all-time streams since the company launched in 2008, it stands to reason that fewer yet will reach the 1,000 streams within a 12-month period. Yeah. While this 1,000-stream threshold affects a large number of tracks, it doesn't impact much of Spotify's royalties to creators and rights holders. Implementing this threshold will shift about 0.5% of Spotify's royalty pool to more popular tracks. And this is a source told this to Billboard. That was equal to about $46 million in royalties in 2022 based on Spotify's $9.27 billion cost of sales that year, which represents virtually all royalty payouts. Yeah, so a little bit of reaction to that. This is, we're picking up now the Music Business Worldwide article. Uh, so Music Business Worldwide uh, itself nodded to Spotify's new 1,000 play threshold in a commentary posted on Thursday entitled Talking Garbage. How can Spotify and company sort the dregs of the music business <laughs> from the hidden treasures? Uh, in that Music Business Reacts article, we reference comments made by Dennis Lottagayeri, uh, CEO of Believe, and the, which is the parent company of, of TuneCore, uh, he made on a recent podcast interview. He specifically expressed disagreement with the idea of a 1,000-stream monetization lower limit on music streaming services. He said, why would you not pay such an artist for getting less than a thousand streams. It doesn't make any sense. What signal as a music industry do you send for aspiring artists if you go in that direction? Yeah, and and Glenn sort of uh, puts a nice bow on it in, in his piece where he says that a cleaner, easier way to improve all artist royalties, one resisted by streaming services until recently, is to raise subscription prices. Every time a streaming service raises fees by 10%, such as Spotify going from $9.99 to $10.99 every month, and they did that in the U.S. in July, the royalties earned from those subscribers increase the commensurate amount. Uh, Deezer has raised its price twice in the last two years. Amazon Music, Apple Music, and YouTube Music have also raised prices in the last year. So some more fallout from, uh, from those Spotify announces. Absolutely. Man, oh, man, oh, man. Hey, how about number two article, Jay? This is from our good friend uh, Trapital. It's out. The Trapital Report. Dan Runcie, what a great job he did on oh this. Oh, my gosh. If you haven't downloaded this report, um, go back. It's There's a link in your morning coffee. Download the report. It is absolutely fantastic. And I was very fortunate. Uh, I have a great deal of respect for uh, Dan Runcie and Trapital. And you and I, Mike, we talk about 
uh, Trapital quite a bit and, and a lot of the things that, the uh, that Dan writes. But this report is special, and I think everybody should, like I printed it out and highlighted it. But more importantly, I, I was honored to uh, sit down and talk with Dan this week uh, about this report. Let's, uh, let's listen into that discussion. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. For, for our listeners who don't know, tell us about this, uh, this thing you've built called Trapital. First off, Jay, thanks for having me. Big fan, always appreciated the shout outs and the supports over the year. And yeah, I'm the founder of Trapital. Trapital does media and research on the business of music, media, and culture. So it's our job to dig into the latest trends, the insights, and where things are going. And oftentimes we're finding things, we're sharing interesting breakdowns on the businesses that a lot of the artists are starting or the businesses that shape this industry and what's really going on. I think what's made Trapital unique and special is being able to break down and have honest conversations about where things are going, really tapping into the strategy, the why and the how, and digging a bit deeper. I mean, I'm someone that comes from working in a few different industries and then bringing those insights to the work we've been doing at Trapital now for the past five, almost six years has been really special. It's something that really brings me a lot of joy and it's been grateful over the years to just see it be a value add for the industry. You put out a report this last week. We featured it in your morning coffee this week and uh, we're going to talk about it a little bit today. It's called the Trapital Report and we could talk for hours about this report, so we're just going to talk about a few things that uh, you and I find uh, interesting. First off, were there any surprises as you put this together? There were a few surprises, two of them that stick out to me. One was about streaming and how it compares to live music, because we've been doing this work for a while. We've known that an artist's performance on streams don't necessarily always correlate to ticket sales, for instance. Many people in the industry know that ticket, set, ticket sales truly is the acid test of how strong a fan base really is. Are people willing to leave their house and show up for you and go see you at your shows? And of course, in many ways, it's a different product than trying to maximize streams. But one of the things that stuck out to us, this is both looking at the data that we had thanks to the folks at Luminate that we were able to work with on the report to get some of the streaming analysis, but also the folks at Polestar to be able to get the live touring data and some of the genre differences because hip hop and R&B, if you look at those two genres, they account for 11% of the concert revenue in the US compared to 27% of the streaming revenue that they account for. And that streaming revenue, while it's been a highly discussed topic over the years, it's still the genre that generates more streaming revenue than any others. But pop and rock, on the other hand, their live music and their streaming revenue are much more in line. Pop and rock accounts for 27% of the concert revenue in the US compared to 33% of streaming. So we knew there was going to be a bit of a disconnect, but that difference really stuck out to us. And it was after having a few conversations with different touring agents and people in the business and people on the streaming side as well, and just other conversations I've had with people, there's a number of factors that go into it, whether it's the age of the genre, some of the historical and racial bias that rap specifically, and to an extent R&B has faced over the years, the development and the product of live music and how people may lead into that. And even the 
growth of festivals and how some artists may be more willing to take the upfront check as opposed to putting in the work to develop a tour. And then especially when you compound that with some of the difficulties that some artists may have touring, especially post-pandemic when it's more expensive than ever, we knew that this was going to be something that's there, but that really stuck out. So that's the first thing. So that's the first thing that stuck out. The other thing that stuck out was we did this analysis on the most valuable songs in the world. And we wanted to look at a few criteria to see what songs fit this threshold. Anyone that uses Spotify sees that the stream counts are there and available, and they have this Billions Club playlist with at least 400, now maybe even over 500 songs. But I wanted to see of those songs, how many of those have a million streams daily and how many of those are more than 20 years old because you've seen this wave of music rights catalog acquisitions over the past few years now. There's been some interesting developments there as we're recording this, of course, but one of the things that you've often seen is that you don't just necessarily want to get the catalog of someone that may be accumulating a billion streams now you want to see some longevity because longevity means that the decay curve of a particular catalog or song is going to be much less steep you need to think about these assets like an annuity something that can give you predictable revenue stream and songs that are more than 20 years old are more likely to do that so we did a similar analysis on both spotify and youtube and there were nine songs that fit that criteria on Spotify. And it's an interesting list. Just to read a few of the names, we have Aha, Take On Me, Coldplay, Yellow, Credence Clearwater Revival, Have You Ever Seen the Name, Eminem, Without Me, Fleetwood Mac, Dreams, Linkin Park, In The End, The Police, Every Breath You Take, Radiohead, Creep, and Tear For Fears, Everybody Wants To Rule The World. If you would have asked me, huh, what songs do I think would have fit that criteria? Maybe I would have guessed one or two of those, but there were a few surprises in there. I didn't think that CCR, a song that, with a song that's over 50 years old, would have made the list. Fleetwood Mac Dreams didn't surprise me at all, especially given the viral um, TikTok during the pandemic a couple years ago. But Linkin Park, Linkin Park is one that showed up on both our Spotify and our YouTube list. The YouTube list had a slightly lower criteria of 700,000 views per day, but Linkin Park is a band that is done very well. And I think one of the things that sticks out is we knew that streaming is a product that is definitely relatively over-indexed with millennial audiences and even younger Gen X audiences. But with that, and because streams make up so much of the revenue that these catalog acquisitions go for, we saw so many of the deals that have happened in the past three, four, five years go for the legacy artists that frankly are closer to the age of CCR. But is it actually your M&Ms, your Linkin Parks, these artists that were huge in the early 2000s that now the people who are now parents, the people who are now dominant players in the as a consumer of music streaming, are they the ones that are more likely to be sticking on to this product? Because every generation in many ways has their dominant medium platform of music that they accumulated a lot. And because these music rights catalogs have truly done well and have expanded in many ways zero interest rates is part of it but streaming is a big part of why it is the people that are, can get their hands on some of these artists that 
this millennial and older Gen X group grew or younger Gen X group grew up with, these are the ones that may be more valuable than people think. Wow, super interesting. So one of the things you point out, streaming growth is slowed. It's underpriced. There's a massive opportunity for super serving the super fan. And, and your report digs into ways to grow that streaming pie. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, this is a topic that has become more and more of interest. And it's become more and more of interest because, as you mentioned, streaming has slowed down. And when streaming slows down, we're starting to see more conversations. And this year, you've heard a lot of discussion points, a lot of the CEOs of the major record labels have spoken publicly about different things, whether it's the push to raise the price that the um, digital service providers charge for their services, whether it's shifting from pro rata to user centric or artist centric, having the differentiation between what a quote unquote professional artist is, all of these things. All of these things are good, but outside of raising the prices, a lot of these are zero sum. You're taking away from something else. And at its core, streaming, as great of a product as it is, and in many ways it did save this industry, it is a product that serves that lowest common denominator because even if you only want to casually want to listen to music and your only requirement is I want to access all the music and just not listen to any ads, you can be served by paying $11 a month for that. And that doesn't necessarily capture all of the super fan activity. And a lot of that, especially in the streaming era, has transitioned over to merchandise, has transitioned over to live tickets and things like that. So what are the things that are native to streaming that can help bring those opportunities? And I do think that super fans is one of those opportunities. Earlier this year, Goldman Sachs had released their report, Music in the Air, and one of their findings is that they quantified this. $4.2 billion opportunity to serve the super fans. And they got that from a few ways. It was looking at their data, which said that at least 20% of the listeners who subscribe to one of these streaming services are super fans of at least one artist. And because of that, they're willing to spend at least 2x more than the average individual. So if you do the math there, that is something that can create great value. I think that that number, as strong as it is, could even be leaving some money on the table because I think that's a number that exists largely within what can be added to the DSPs in terms of their platform. And I think we've already seen a few opportunities there. But I also think that there are other platforms that are actively looking at this. And of course, I mentioned in the report, Web3 and NFTs did work towards getting at some of this. I think that even though there's certain things about the mechanics of Web3 or the discussion about it that may not have necessarily clicked in the way that a lot of those companies desired, some of those themes still have relevancy, whether it is on-chain or off-chain. I still think that there's big opportunity there. And what these fans want, they want some form of community. They want merchandise. They want to be able to feel like they can have either access or input on the overall product that's being made? Can they get a bit more connected? There's so many interesting opportunities there. And I do think that as much as these things should all be explored, there's still a fine line because no one wants to treat these fans like an ATM machine where you're just constantly pulling things from them and you're constantly trying to take money from them. But 
you also want to give fans the opportunity to buy different things if they want to and finding ways to maximize the opportunity in a way that doesn't take too much away from it. So there's a fine line, but I do think that it's possible to hit hit it properly. Yeah. So the the most compelling section for me was the how I run this section of the report. I found that really fascinating where you broke down sort of the revenue from different artists, you know, whether it's live, merch, their music. Talk a little bit about the how I run this section. Yeah, so I was fortunate for these two artists to bring me under the bring me under the hood a little bit. And they're two artists that I've been able to talk to at different points, even before doing this report. And what stuck out to me about them, the two artists are Verite, who's a singer, and then La Russell, who's a rapper. And the two of them, they're independent artists, and they've been able to make this work for them. And they've both been able to be good success stories and they've thought about their businesses in ways that have been effective too and I think what makes them stand out is that yes as much as they're known for their music I think within the music business community they're also known for how they've been able to be successful because I think a lot of people have heard the stories about your Chance the Rappers or your Russes and folks like that and yeah those stories are all great and even someone like Brent Fayez I would put into that category but still people want to be able to see examples of okay well what does it look like for someone that doesn't have a million active monthly listeners on spotify what does it look like for someone that isn't nominated for best new artist at the grammys well these well these artists they define success on their own terms and it's it was really interesting i'm grateful for them to be willing to share bring it under the hood here so with verite she was sharing how she still does get Touring is the largest sum of her money, but it's not the majority. She gets over 25% of it from merchandise. She also does some consulting as well because she just, people want to better understand how she runs her business. And there's a few private shows in there. And, you know, her work with Venice Music and uh, different groups like that and how she's exploring AI and Web3 and different things like that. And as an artist that stays on top of this, she's going to have an opinion on user-centric and payouts and things like that. And frankly, in a way that some of the artists who are signed to record labels may not necessarily understand. I was just at a dinner last night and we were talking about how a lot of artists, unfortunately, may not even fully realize how pro-rata streaming works and how a stream leads to them getting paid and doesn't getting paid. But yeah, that's exactly how it is. And I think Russell fits in a similar category where he makes over uh, half of his revenue that comes from live music, which is a mix of tours and private shows and things like that. But he also gets 30% of his revenue from merchandise as well. So what sticks out to me about both of them, they are closer to maximizing their quote-unquote demand curve than others might. They're giving different opportunities for people to come and reach them. Sure, you can stream their music, but they have many other opportunities to push that and in many ways have their fan base be familiar with supporting them in ways that may not line up with how a standard artist signed to a regular label that's doing more things on a bit more standard basis may do. That doesn't apply to everyone, but that's one of the reasons why I picked those artists and I'm grateful that they were able to bring us under the hood a bit to share because I do think that they are doing things in a way that works well for them. They're showing what sustainability looks like and they're willing to 
be real and share some thoughtful insights. Yeah, I learned a lot from that. Um, fantastic report, Dan. Um, keep up the great work. Uh, we'd love to have you back on to talk about these things. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jay. Appreciate the support. And for anyone that wants to listen and uh, download the report, we have two options. So we did record a podcast episode about the report. Um, so if you look for Trapital, you'll see it on your feed. Um, recorded it with uh, David Boyle from Audience Strategies, who him and his team had helped prepare a lot of the insights for the report. And then you could actually download the report as well on our website. If you go to trapital.co slash report, you can get it there. You got it. All right. Thanks again, Dan. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it, Jay. We'll talk soon. Wonderful. And, you know, we we know how hard of a job it is to put these reports together. It is just so much time and effort. And, boy, hats off to Dan for a great job. And uh, he always does a great job at Trapital, but this particular report is just fantastic. Yeah. A must read. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Dan. Yes, thanks again. All right, let's jump over to our last one. It's from Howie Singer and Bill Rosenblatt. Key changes, the 10 times technology transformed the music industry. Yeah, I, you know, we've been raving about this book since it came out. Um, both of us bought this book. Um, the introduction alone is worth the price of admission, but uh, it really <laughs> sort of That's tells true. this new story about the history of the music business but also, you know, 10 technologies, you know, these technological advances that really disrupted the industry over the last century or so. Indeed. In recent years, narratives about the music industry tend to hew uh, to a common theme. It was humming along for decades until the Internet and Napster came along and disrupted it. Key Changes, the book that is, shows that this view is incorrect. The industry was actually shaken up not once in the 1990s, but 10 times over more than 100 years. These 10 disruptions uh, came with the introduction of new formats for enjoying recorded music, starting with the cylinders and discs played on early phonographs. Then moving through radio, LP, tapes, CDs, television, digital downloads, streaming, and streaming video, and then into artificial intelligence, AI, which of course we talk a lot mm -hmm. about, which enables a wide range of new capabilities with profound impacts upon the business. This book devotes a chapter to each of these formats, illustrating how such innovations begat shifts in creativity, consumer behavior, economics, and law. That's right. Each of the technological innovations covered in this new book not only disrupted the music business, but also fundamentally altered the industry's character. And while the technologies themselves have evolved in unique and varied ways over the decades, the changes within the business follow a clear pattern. So veteran music industry professionals and music technology experts Howie Singer and Bill Rosenblatt they illuminate this pattern through a framework they term the six C's. Cutting-edge technology, channels of distribution, creators, consumers, cash, copyright, and, and the, the, the business from each of these eras. Extensively researched and supplemented by interviews with Grammy-winning artists, producers, and executives, this book provides an insightful perspective on ways technology has fundamentally altered the music industry throughout history and uh, the present era. And again, um, I, I had a chance to talk to these two gentlemen this week, 
And we're going to have to have him back on because we could have talked for hours. But let's listen in on this discussion with Howie Singer and Bill Rosenblatt, the uh, authors of Key Changes. Thank you both for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, there, there are just a few books about the music industry that I always recommend to colleagues, college students. This is definitely on that list. Tell our audience how the book uh, came about and, and tell us a little bit about the book. Well, the book is called Key Changes, The Ten Times Technology Transformed the Music Industry. And uh, it came about when I always thought someday I'd like to write a book about the things I had experienced in the industry. I joined the music industry with a early startup in the digital music era in the late 90s and lived through Napster and lived through iTunes and lived through streaming. In many cases, I was negotiating along with colleagues at Warner Music for those deals. But then a whole bunch of books got written about, you know, how the industry was caught with its pants down, shall we say, when it came to the digital transformation. And uh, the more I thought about it, the, the more I realized that this was not the beginning of a story, but to some degree, a continuing saga about the industry being disrupted every time a new format comes into play and how those changes affect the rest of the industry. So literally the day NYU, where I teach, as does Bill, um, locked down for COVID, I started writing and I sent the chapters to a couple of people. One of them was to Bill, who uh, then volunteered to join me on the journey. Uh, and it's a good thing that he did. Yeah. So what happened? So I've actually written a few books in the past, more of a technical nature. And uh, <clears throat> the more relevant one is I wrote a book on digital rights management. If we all remember what that was, what well, is actually. Back in 2001, um, I had gotten involved in radio starting in college. And that's sort of a side thing that I am involved with to this day, as a matter of fact, um, and started getting involved in music industry stuff professionally in the, I'd say, early to mid 2000s when I was uh, hired to be an expert witness in one of the Napster related litigations on behalf of. Um, Bertelsmann, actually, a BMG. And so um, Howie and I met around that time, I would say, in the early 2000s. And we've been, you know, we've been friends and colleagues ever since. And when he came to me with this idea for a book in the lockdown uh, 2020 summer timeframe, my first reaction was he, his original thought was this would should be a textbook for a class I want to teach at NYU. And I've worked in educational publishing, and I said, you know, first of all, nobody writes textbooks anymore. That's a kind of a dead field. <clears throat> and there, there's really sort of, there's no point in spending your time writing something that you intend to be a textbook. But second of all, this would make a great trade title. And the word trade in book publishing means a book that you buy in a bookstore like Barnes and Noble, as opposed to a textbook that you buy just for your class or a professional book that you might buy because you're a doctor and you need a surgical procedure or what have you. This would make a great trade title, I said, when Howie explained his idea to me. And then the third thing I had to say was, would you like help? <laughs> and Howie said, yes. And, you know, and here we are. We ended up as partners in this endeavor. And since I have worked 
in the publishing industry. I, I found an agent who in turn found a publisher. Actually, we got a bunch of offers and we chose the one from Oxford University Press and we were off and running. And, you know, three years later, the book's finally published. Yeah. And it's a good one. I, I've sold probably 12 copies. So next time we, uh, wow. we meet, we coffee's on you. Um, one least. of the, one of the many, many takeaways from this book, at least for me was that technology has always disrupted and transformed the music business. What were some of the disruptions or transformations that you guys found most interesting? I guess I'll start. So my favorite example, <clears throat> some, some of them are pretty obvious, like the LP to the CD or the cassette to the CD. And then of course the Napster download transformation, you know, our elevator pitch for the book, by the way, is there have been books before that, you know, Jay, you've seen certainly uh, like Appetite for Self-Destruction and so on that talk about how the music industry was humming along fine until Napster came to blew it up. And our elevator pitch is, well, that's true, but there were actually many disruptions that were engendered by new technologies coming in and producing new ways of getting recorded music to the public. And so my favorite example of a transition that I had not really thought about before I did research for this book is the transition to vinyl from 78s. So the um, what are called microgroove formats, the 12 inch LP, the seven inch 45 came about in the late 1940s during one of the biggest economic booms in American history after the second world war. And people were used to 78s um, for listening to music, and they were also used to listening to the radio. And then when these two formats came out, and it was two formats because RCA basically refused to go along with Columbia's LP, which all the other labels were going along with, everyone got confused. And there was a format war, and people just said, I, you know, I don't need this. I don't want to have two separate phonographs or whatever. So I'm just going to blow this off and listen to the radio as I move into my palatial suburban home from my city apartment during the post-war boom. And this caused the industry revenue to nosedive, not by as much as it did with Napster, but by a significant amount, like around a quarter. The industry lost about a quarter of its value between the late 40s and early 50s. And the only thing that, posed, that pulled it out of its nosedive was rock and roll, which created a market for the 45 as a separate thing from the LP, which was good for classical and Broadway and, and so on. So that's my favorite example. I, I think for me, one that I had not thought of as disrupting as much of the business as it did was MTV, which although it's not a physical format, certainly changed the industry greatly and um, you know helped to foster the career of some artists who were enormous before MTV, like Michael Jackson, and helped to build the careers of others who were, uh, you know, not even known, like Madonna. Um, but one of the things that was instructive to me when doing the research was that um, at first, you know, the some of the bigger labels wanted nothing to do with MTV, because MTV wanted to use the videos without paying for them and famously presented that proposition at a conference when one of the Universal Music executives said, I'm not gonna give you my friggin' videos. He said something more colorful than friggin' at the time. And, um, but then the industry went through a slump. And at the point of the slump, guess what? 
the companies that were not giving MTV their videos decided maybe it was worth it. And they decided it was worth it because they found that bands nobody knew were selling out concerts in Iowa and other smaller Midwestern markets because cable and MTV was not yet in the big cities. And so they had a natural experiment, if you will, that showed that showing these videos, and many of them were from British bands because the American labels weren't making music videos as promotional items. Uh, you know, they found that these bands were popular. They, you know, New Wave became a thing because it appealed to the audiences that had MTV at first. And the financial stress on the industry is what caused people to change their minds and move for this new format. Yeah. Well, listen, we need to have you guys back on to continue the conversation. I absolutely love this book. I recommend it to uh, anyone, everyone, highly. Um, congratulations, guys. You knocked it out of the park. Thank you Thanks so, so much. much. Wow. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And I've got the book on my desk right now and I'm reading it. I, I just started it actually. There it is. You're showing me yours <laughs> and I'm showing you mine. No pun yep. intended. Uh, and of course, like you said earlier, you know, just reading through the very beginning and seeing who they thank, you know, it's people that we've known and worked with for years and years and years. So it's, uh, they really did a tremendous amount of work on this. Again, talking about, you know, yeah putting this pen to paper and what a fascinating read. And it's, it's one of our sort of desert Island books, right? We've got about five or six That's books right. that we always talk about that you must have on your yeah. shelf. And this is, I agree. This sure. is definitely one that you need to have on your shelf. You know, we talk about books that we love all the time. Of course, everybody, you know, has the Donald Passman book, which is so good. You know, the Brabeck brothers book, we talk about quite a bit. Mike Warner's work hard playlist hard. There are just a handful of these that you just have to have, on your desk. And this one has become my new favorite and I've read through it and highlighted it. And I'll probably go through it again because there's so much to it. Um, but it's a really great refresher course for some, and it's a really great reference book, uh, for some, but it is one of the best books I've ever read on the music industry. We highly recommend it one last time. It's key changes. The 10 times technology transformed the music industry by our friends Howie Singer and Bill Rosenblatt. Indeed. And on that note, Jay, we got to wrap up the episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening to episode 169. Boy, we certainly appreciate it. And of course, big thanks to Bandzoogle, Myco, Hypebot, Bands in Town, and the Music Business Association. And if you enjoy our show, please just tell just one, one friend. We certainly appreciate it. Just one. That way, Jay doesn't have to go over to your house and bang on the door and say, say did you tell one friend this week? We don't want that to happen. You can do this on your own. So we appreciate that. So on behalf of Jay Gilbert and myself, we say big thanks, and we'll see you next time on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know. 